Okay, so we are firmly now in the Kenneth Biller era of Star Trek Voyager. I don't think we mentioned this last week, but you actually mentioned it when we talked about the last two episodes of season six, which I did not comment on at the time, but in hindsight, I was very impressed by. And I think it's a case of these are good episodes, but it feels like too little too late. Yeah, and... They sh- I feel like they should be better episodes, and some of them remind me of better episodes. Uh, Drive, in a lot of ways, seems reminds me of Take Me Out to the Holodeck. Uh, they are pretty much the same position in the seventh season of their respective shows. Uh, I think uh, yeah. Holodeck was episode four. Um, they... And yet, I mean, I know t- that's one of your favorite episodes of DS9 and kind of with good reason. And I f- feel they suffer by comparison. Drive is a lot shallower version of that kind of concept. And, you know, re- repression falls apart in motivation for me. I don't know. Like in a lot of ways, these episodes kind of washed over me. There were some good moments, but they weren't great episodes and yeah yeah and i i think there's a lot to unpack there because i think part of the reason why drive and repression are not as good as they could be is that star trek voyager well two reasons number one of course is that star trek voyager is about four different shows and we are now in the fourth version of the show we are firmly in the kenneth biller area of the show and we are starting to see the sorts of stories that kenneth biller as showrunner is going to approve and want to move forward and Interestingly enough, they are mostly ensemble pieces. I mean, I don't know if this holds for the rest of the season. I most recently rewatched Star Trek Voyager, like maybe... um, I think four years ago before this. And so I don't, I don't necessarily remember if this holds true for the rest of the season, but there does seem to be a, a concerted effort made to highlight Most or all of the main characters in some way, shape, or form. And more than that, Repression actually has two Maquis crew members. One that we haven't seen, I don't believe, since the last episode of the first season, the Bolian guy. And uh, the second one is the Bajoran Maquis from Nothing Human, the episode with the um, Cardassian holographic uh, Mengala. And... It, 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 it strikes me as, as very interesting, but at the same time, part of the reason why these episodes don't work as well as they could is because, like, Take Me Out to the Hall of Suite, to use your example, is building on the really yeah. strong character work and plot development and world building that DS9 had been doing for six years. And Voyager just doesn't have that. And I think the, like... The other part that I... Well, go ahead. Well, Take Me Out to the Hall of Suite, in terms of plot... It's funny because it's a lot less complex, if I remember right. Uh, it doesn't really have any B-plots. It's pretty much just a Bad News Bear remake instead, except with the cast of DS9. And Drive, yeah. of course, has this you know terrorism plot, and there's this war and all of that and stuff. And Hollow Sweet is such a good episode because it very much is a the definition of a breather episode, right? They are... In the middle of this war, it's about to peak. We're about to have some climaxy shit happen soon. Um, this is something that the uh, one where they're all in Vic Fontaine's at the end is, does to very good effect as well. Um, and this is a moment of just we're going to calm down. We're going to remember kind of 
why this is all so important because we are bonding these this group as a family and they are all fighting together and all of that. It is cementing the togetherness that is important for the show and that is going to be important for the cast of DS9 in the challenges that they are about to face. And so re-cementing that bond uh, becomes very necessary. And frankly, it also goes into Cisco and his personality and his stubbornness. It is an analog of their larger struggle with the Dominion War uh, played out in this baseball game, which is funny, and we have a lot of comedic moments in that episode. Again, just as a as a standalone episode of television, it's a funny episode. Uh, and so it yeah. serves a lot of very specific purposes. I don't think that Voyager is about to have any particularly big challenges ahead of them. You know, there's just going to be shenanigans from here on, on out until they get home. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all right. And and what I find interesting about this is that I think it's funny. Like, so I have been watching, rewatching Space Above and Beyond, which was the like cult classic, forgotten uh, space science fiction show that aired on Fox. I think in nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six. Yeah, I've created never by seen Glenn it. Morgan and James Wong, who. Uh, became most famous for writing on the X-Files and they sort of like took that cachet and they did their their big like passion project and mm. it failed after one season. Um, you know, I've only seen the first five episodes so far, so I don't know if it's, you know, people say that it, it, it becomes very good. I think it's just okay right now and yeah. some of it is kind of ropey. But what I find interesting about it is that that was 1995, right? And that was the same year that Star Trek Voyager mm. was on the air. And... I what 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 strikes me as interesting about Space Above and Beyond is that it is a show that was a little bit I don't want to say it was ahead of its time but it was sort of like of its time where well I guess it is ahead of its time like it has ongoing storylines it is able yeah. to kind of like tell a larger story while still maintaining a, an episodic structure very similar to how DS9 worked and what is always hampered Voyager is a stubborn insistence on making a show that might have felt more vibrant 10 or 15 years ago. They are basically remaking TNG as we've said before. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up well when you compare it to other television shows of the same time period. Yeah. Well, Especially in the mid-90s, you had a very large tradition of episodic television to draw from, and uh, I feel – obviously, you have a lot of shows in this era that are really interested in telling something more complex and, uh, again, not being able to because of – you know, a lot's been written about how the rise of DVD players and streaming services has made it very easy to tell a complex story because you have the whole – archive there with you you don't have that even in the mid 90s yet um but i feel like the and even vcrs yeah before that. it's it's that that certainly helped and i think that was where a lot why a lot of this was able to be successful why the x-files was able to pull off a plot like that because people were recording the episodes it's true um and being able to talk about them online if you had missed one or trading tapes and all of that these were resources that were becoming available, but the biggest tradition that these people really had to draw from and improve on was soap operas. I mean, that was really the only major serialized uh, television storytelling at that point, and so I think it does become kind of hokey. I mean, 
I think one of the most successful examples of serialized storytelling in the mid-90s was Friends of All Things, which uh, has a lot of very strong continuity that it builds over, and it's telling soap opera-style stories about you know love and relationships and things. Um, when you get to the 2000s and Sopranos era, then you do have shows which were drawing from these early attempts at serialized t- storytelling, I think. Yeah, I think all that's right, and and I think that's why, you know, we have tried to be as fair as possible to Star Trek Voyager, and I think we continue to to try and be as fair as possible to to Star Trek Voyager. And and I want to be yeah. clear that I I liked Drive and Repression, but there, you know, at this point, this is Star Trek Voyager. This is what we are getting, and there is an element of this is not enough. The, the, I think the 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 only way that I can really explain it, and then we can move on to to maybe actually talking about Drive, <laughs> is I you know like I said I rewatched Voyager about four years ago, and I know that a lot of people like this show and yeah. have a lot of fond memories of the cast of the characters of the stories, but I have to say, and we've always you know I've always said like we get criticism t- sometimes for shitting on Star Trek Voyager, which I, to be clear, I don't think we do. I think we're just being fair, but harsh critics because the television show deserves fair, but harsh criticism. Um, that I don't think Star Trek Voyager necessarily works very well as just like, I'm going to watch this as entertainment and not really watch it as a critic. I think Star Trek Voyager is one of those shows that, I mean, it might just be personal, like or dislike but i just don't think it works very well as entertainment or watching it as a critic i actually think that that when i rewatched star trek enterprise around the same time um i was rewatching a lot of television shows at this point in a long in a short period of time because i was off my feet for about six weeks uh, <laughs> that i enjoyed star trek enterprise a lot more as entertainment and i will be curious to see if yeah. i if i find things about Star Trek Enterprise that hold up to watching it as a critic. Well, I mean, so I get, and I want to say, like, I'm actually not sure how interesting talking about Drive is at this point. We'll talk about the Tom Bellana romance. We'll talk about the the big plot of it. But I do find at this point these kind of meta elements to be very interesting because to me that brings out the question of why do people have such fond memories of Voyager? I mean, there is a lot to be said for watching a certain thing at a certain time and it hits you and it becomes bigger than it is. And I guess I can, I I, I mean, is that where Voyager comes from? People watched it at the right age to get into Star Trek and that was the Star Trek show that was there and it just really I think so. I mean, I will say like when I was a teenager and when I was in college, I watched Star Trek Voyager and I enjoyed it as entertainment and I have just become different as I've gotten older and perhaps I have just, you know, demanded more of my television shows. I mean, I actually, I actually don't watch a ton of television anymore because I, so much of it I find to to be aggravating. But that's not Um, a bad thing necessarily because you do, I mean, we both have attempted to refine our critical palates and all of that. And I'm, while, yes, certainly some of the things that I enjoyed as a kid, I still enjoy now. Um, I mean, we, we we got a Switch, and it has, like, some old Nintendo games uh, with the subscription. And I was playing Super Mario 3, and I was having a hell of a time the other night. Uh, it's still a really good game that holds up. At the same time, 
I'm not playing it like I did when I was nine years old. I mean, we're not nine years old sure. anymore. We shouldn't be interacting with the thing, these things in the same way. And just because, well, some, and I think, yeah, just because something like, I mean, doesn't for example, hit you. Like, at, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, like, for example, like I can still, I watch TNG. I enjoyed it as a child and as a teenager and I can still enjoy it. You know, I just think that there's something about Star Trek Voyager that as you're, critical faculties or your tastes mature it just doesn't hold up as well well it's the kind of thing that works on different levels right like uh you know sesame street i may not enjoy watching as an adult but i could still enjoy the muppet show i mean there are things that just are naturally more have fewer dimensions and again that's not a bad thing they are doing exactly what they wanted i think voyager wanted to and often succeeded in being a yeah you know it was good entertainment for its time i think i i i i i don't know did they just not know any better in 1999 (laughs) <laughs> no, like is that what in, I'm uh, implying? We're in, we're in like two thousand by now, but I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't really remember two thousand very well. I was living outside of the country, and well, no, actually, no, I wasn't. That I was living outside the country in two thousand one. But you know, I was in college. I wasn't spending a lot of time yeah. watching television in the year mm. two thousand. So I, I don't necessarily remember what was happening then. But yeah, I mean, I think that's fair, and I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head, maybe accidentally, which is that Star Trek Voyager basically has one level and if you enjoyed that level when you were 13 when you there's no other level to enjoy it on when you're 37 maybe i mean i don't know if that's a fair read on it or not but i think that's i think that's our 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 season seven episode three answer we may like i'm what i'm curious to be doing over the course of this season and the, the remaining time in voyager is refining that answer i think yeah, I think so too, and I think that's why I wanted to start off this this episode talking about this. Well, well, let's let's talk about the actual episode then about drive because there are a lot of elements here that that I really enjoy. I think that as a piece of entertainment and even as an attempt to refine the show in such a way to sort of like try and include as many of the characters as possible and to make this show more of an ensemble piece. I think it does a pretty good job. I think that, you know, I have, I have thoughts and feelings about the show leaning very heavily on giving Bellana a character as someone in a relationship and not as her own person. But we can talk about that when we get to that plot line. But Yeah, I mean, there was just something very nice about seeing a competent group of people who want to be... I mean, I can see this kind of storyline happening on TNG very easily. Of course. Um, And maybe that's damning with fame praise. I don't know. No, this does feel like... I think it's done effectively. It did feel like a, a TNG episode. I mean, this could be a very easily Alpha Quadrant plot. You know, th- th- this situation could have existed in the Alpha Quadrant. This is uh, – it's actually very similar to the plot of the novel Q and Law, right, which we did as one of our patron specials uh, where there is a group that is fighting and they're at a tentative peace and the Federation and the Enterprise is chosen as the neutral location because they're the Federation. I mean – this is an episode that really – Drive is an episode which really assumes that this ambassador sees the Federation and thinks, wow, neutral party instead of 
who the fuck are these people who are suddenly showing up? Um, I mean, it, it, it's a massive amount of trust on them that this isn't an agent of one of the feuding powers trying to do something underhanded. And it really is based around the Federation having an excellent reputation, which does it in the Delta Quadrant, which, by the way, apparently calls itself the Delta Quadrant. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what the hell that was about. <laughs> but I, I do think that that was a little strange. But I, I don't know. I think that there's I kind of disagree with you a little bit because I think that this harkens back to a more pure or traditional form of Star Trek storytelling, which is that the Federation, as we've said before, Starfleet, as we've said before, engages with people in good faith, yeah. believes them and, you know, believe, tr- trust but verify, I guess, is, is the, the Star Trek um, motto and or the Starfleet motto. And this alien species, this alien polity, whatever it is, yeah. also seems to kind of like hold that ethos that... Okay, sure. We have no reason to distrust you, so we are just going to go with this. And I actually like that. I think that you know one of the one of the the not necessarily problems, but one of the uh, late motifs of Star Trek Voyager has always been every alien species that, or almost every alien species that the Voyager crew encounters are just basically assholes. And this is definitely yeah. not that. No, it's true. It's it, 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 in that context, it almost does come off as the ambassador is going out of his way to act in good faith towards everybody because that is the way that he believes is the best way to preserve this peace is by, no, we are all friends. We're doing this. This is fine. This is a friendly competition. Come on. Okay. I believe you. Yes, that's fine. We're going to be generous to everybody. And it really does only seem to be that one lady that Harry Kim falls in love with that's uh, not <laughs> acting in good faith in this. Even the uh, the guy with the makeup, he's an asshole, but he just seems to just be an asshole, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, he that's just his personality, and that's fine. I mean, I will say that that I like I like the I don't know who the actor is who plays the ambassador, but one yeah. of the reasons why I think that plot line specifically works is that the the actor who plays him gives a really like sort of like lived in world weary quality where you yeah. can really see that this guy's day-to-day life is just working 14 hours a day yeah. in a job that is extremely stressful and so when this like fancy ship full of people who are smiling at you say hey you know what we got a solution to one of your problems he's like oh thank god okay fine yes this is great you know what i mean yeah no there's the he's spending all of his time dealing with this thing that's supposed to be like everybody's gonna have a great time at this thing except for fucking him because he, this is he knows every single stress and how how tentative it's true yeah um, maybe, you know, there, there, again, it's inconsistent. There are parts where the episode does shine. I think, uh, I mean, I love the bit about with Neelix and Seven of Nine. That's, you know, Voyager is pretty decent at comedy when it wants to be. And I liked that part very much. It was, you know, maybe a low joke, but it was cute. Like the, the which which joke? Um, where, where, where seven and nine is like, well, they're such and such far apart. He's like, no, let me get that, and he begins color commentating. You know, it it it, oh, it, yeah. it lets Neelix ham it up, and and 
at something that Ethan Phillips is very good at. Yeah, of they, course. It's, why wouldn't Why wouldn't Neelix be a wonderful color commentator? You know, it was cute and charming, and I like when the show is cute and charming. I'm really starting to appreciate cute and charming as an aesthetic lately. I mean, '90s was all about the grit, and I loved the grit at the time, and I still do love the grit. But you know. I don't know. I think I, I, those moments are what stands out for me, and I guess maybe Voyager is a product of its time, where it's. I mean, that's where TNG goes in, right? TNG is a charming show. It felt confident enough to be charming. Voyager doesn't feel confident enough to be charming as much as it may want to. It's yeah difficult to. But be- at the same time, if it had leaned into that it might have been a more interesting show i don't that's, know that's what i'm saying i mean it, it, it it's too bit it, it's very worried about being cool and as a result it's non-coolness is showing very much there's no it's not as earnest and and sincere as tng maybe yeah yeah i mean i'm, I'm kind of envisioning star trek voyager as a series whose you know, major tone is akin to every single bridge scene at the end of an original series episode. I would watch that. I oh my, would too. No, Maybe it's, they should make that. Show. I, I want that to be Star Trek now, just as I want the sixties Batman to come back. Like I want that goofy sixties camp. Just, I don't know, just cheery and, you know, just good is going to win and we're going to figure this out, guys. Like, I think a sophisticated version of that is what we fucking need. Well, leaving that aside, (laughs) we do have to, I think, grapple and we've been doing a very good job of not grappling with it. Uh, The the Tom and Bellana relationship, which is at the the heart of this episode, uh, pun not intended, I guess, and... Um, the fact, of course, that they're married at the end. And, I mean, fine, they're yeah, married. Sure. I have no issue with that, necessarily. Yeah, exactly, sure. Why not? Uh, it's a I'm glad those kids, have, you know, it's just a general, glad those kids finally got together. Um, I still maintain that Bolana could do much better than Tom Paris, but that's neither here nor there at this point. <laughs> um, I... Th- I don't find it interesting in and of itself. Um, I was shocked to find out they've been together three years because really already (laughs) like I I think there is a degree to which their relationship is based around, you know, we've been together three years and sure we love each other and let's do this. All right. We're 35. Let's get married. Yeah, because then they get together in the fourth season or maybe even the third season. I that don't remember exactly. Three but, years, But it was yeah. a while ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we have talked before about the Tom and Bellana relationship and how we're not super interested in it because... And I think actually, like, I'm not super interested in it not because it's straight people drama, but I'm just not super interested in it because I don't necessarily believe them as a couple and I don't necessarily care about them. Yeah. I <laughs> Which mean, is maybe horrible to say, but the show has not really given me a reason to care about their relationship. Well, I guess I and I think it's a little more interesting to they're finally like these episodes I think seem to make Harry seem to be going back to the Harry Kim is Tom and Bellana's sidekick kind of 
dynamic between them. And that really works to me. You know, if, well, yeah, sure. Tom and Balan are the couple and Harry Kim is their friend that, you know, they invite to dinner and give him Tupperware because they feel bad for him. But, you know, sure. and, you know, if he finds a girl, yeah, they're going to encourage it. And that's about that. And they don't quite take him seriously. But, you know, he's Harry Kim and they like him fine. And, you know, I mean, I do think it's a little odd because it isn't Harry Kim at this point, like 30. Yeah, but he's still like the symbolic, their symbolic little brother. I mean, I, 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 I if they, this seemed to have been a dynamic again that they were doing in the early seasons and occasionally with Tom and Harry, but I don't know. It works for me. Uh, so did you buy Bolana's dark night of the soul moment with Neelix? No, not particularly. Um, I mean, I, 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 I do buy that Bolana feels everything very strongly. I mean, that is one thing that has been consistent in the character. She does feel sure. anger very much and she's, you know, she's worked on it and she's become better. And, in some ways, it's been more about repressing her stuff as it is about finding healthy ways to channel it. But, you know, I do buy that after she has spent, you know, gone crazy working to have this weekend with Tom and, you know, it, it, it's the logistics on her end, her end were very annoying to deal with and frustrating. And she had to go to the doctor and ask him for a favor. I mean, for Bolana, that is horrible to do. Uh, but she swallowed her pride. And then suddenly he comes and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I've planned this other thing. And oh, I totally forgot about that. I mean, it is kind of a slap in the face to her. And she is, I think, feeling that conflict between, you know, this is not really worth having an actual fight about. But damn, I'm pissed. And I wish she would have realized that. Um I don't know. Not I, even not even pissed. I mean, I think that she seems tired in that scene. And I think that, yeah. that is you know, that that is the one moment to me that felt that rang true where, you know, in in, in a relationship you, you do get to a point where you're not even angry, you're not even sad anymore, yeah. you're just tired of it, and you just want it to be over. And but I don't necessarily buy that Bolana is there. And and this is part of what I think I was talking about or we were talking about earlier, where I'm glad that Star Trek Voyager is is, is attempting to tell character-based stories again about characters that we have not had episodes about in a while. I mean, we can't yeah. have every episode of the show be about Seven of Nine or The Doctor. But I I also don't think that they have earned Bolana's hesitancy in this episode. And I also just frankly don't buy that Bolana would, like, spill her guts to Neelix of all people. I mean... You know, yeah. It, it, I mean, I actually... As much as her and Seven of Nine scene fails the Bechdel test, I, I really liked their scene together. I mean, of all things, it reminded me a little bit about my so-called life and the later arcs where Rayanne and uh, – what the fuck is her name? Uh, Shannon – Sharon. Uh, like they're not exactly friends and they don't quite like each other, but – which kind of makes it okay for them to like talk very openly to each other. Um, because yeah. they have no reason to impress each other, and so they can be candid and come for actual advice. And that's kind of where Bolana and Seven of Nine are. I mean, especially after uh, last week when she when Seven of Nine hit out in engineering, like they have a little bit of a bond. Seven of Nine is not going to sugarcoat anything if uh, uh, she's not going to make something up. She is going to be going 
at things from a very rational perspective, which frankly is what Balana knows she needs a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, I can also see Balana talking to to Chakotay about it. Yeah, I. You know, I just don't know why Neelix. And I think it's yeah. just that they have slotted Neelix into that role on the show and Bellana is in a vulnerable situation. And so, I mean, maybe they're trying to telegraph exactly how, how vulnerable and upset she is that she's just going to talk to whoever's in the room. I, I don't know, but, but I also, it doesn't uh, necessarily work for me. I do agree. Uh, but I do think that there have been plenty of times where... Um, I, I, I mean, I'm remembering her depression episode, right? Like where he's feeding, you know, he's trying to feed her the entire time. Um, and I, I do buy that the characters in Bellana especially have realized that when Neelix has decided it's time to counsel you, that you just have to let him counsel you because he is going to be much more annoying at not doing it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think there yeah. is an amount of resignation that everybody knows that, yes, they're going to feel a little bit better after talking to him. That's really what they need to do. And again, I think this older version of Bellana than her, her initial appearances um, is one who has recognized that, yes, it may suck to have to talk about it, but it is the thing that works. So might as well. Okay. I'll buy that. There was just one really weird reference to me, and I wonder if this is emblematic of something about Voyager, but um, Balan is talking about where she's going to have her hollow date with, uh, with Tom, and she suggests the paradise planet of Getty Prime. So this is a reference to Dune, and Getty Prime is actually like a hell planet. It is... Uh, where the Harkonnens are based, it is essentially uh, picture industrialization going up to 25 and for hundreds of years a destroyed environment, a smog everywhere. It's, you know, a dystopic from an environmentalist perspective. So it's really weird that they would pick out that very particular reference because Dune has full other names of plenty of planets that have uh, – that might be nice to visit if you want to do a Dune reference – I don't know why they made that particular reference. It was weird. Might have just been an in-joke, or it might have not been a reference at all, because do you really think that the person that wrote this episode was a Dune fan? I think that maybe they just accidentally hit that. <laughs> I was going to say, could it be that they just, you know, that there's only so many combinations of nonsense syllables to make sci-fi planet names? Yeah, that could be. Well, I think the one other thing that I want to mention before we move on to oppression is kind of talking once again about how the Kenneth Biller era of the show seems to be more interested in, in continuity. They do make an actual point of an, like an actual plot, an actual episode about like the rebuilding of the Delta Flyer after it was destroyed in Unimatrix Zero. So I don't really yeah. have anything to say about it. I just thought it was important to mention because... I don't think that Brandon Braga would have cared to do that. No, that's true, and I didn't even notice, and I would have just assumed. I mean, if they hadn't mentioned that the Delta Flyer was rebuilt, I mean, I would have just assumed, all right, that was done between, and it wasn't an interesting story. It just involved, you know, Bellana oversaw an industrial replicator for a few hours. Um, well, and they actually do mention they actually do take the Delta Flyer out in the previous episode, but that was a continuity error because apparently Drive was supposed okay. to be aired before Imperfection, even though it was 
filmed after imperfection yeah. so oh, well. do with that information what you will um all we right do, well they are trying to really make us remember that harry kim had a dead girlfriend by the way and again it's weird how uh, they've they did not they've approached that event backwards as that that definitely happened but they didn't establish that she existed in the first place like i'm starting to see I, the episode didn't piss me off as much, but the fact that they keep referring to the episode, because this is like the second or third time there's been a joke about it. I mean, they really are trying to make this running joke of every time Harry falls for someone, Tom reminds him of all the terrible people he was into. Which, you know what? If that's what they're going to do, it's the last season of the show at this point. Let them do it. I'm like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> it's as you said, when you've been in a relationship too long and it's not, you know, it's not even worth the fight. It's just, yeah, okay, you're just tired. Exactly. I'm just tired of Harry Kim. <laughs> so uh, Repression, I think, is a lesser episode than Drive. I think yeah. I liked it, but I also don't really understand what the point of it was. And the ending was particularly pat and kind of insulting. <laughs> yeah, um... Okay, so I think my biggest problem – now you said some of the Maki characters, the bowling, for example, were um, seen beforehand, and I'll take your word on that. This is an episode that I think would have been a lot stronger if we knew who these people were. I mean we really should have – Yeah. So these, they're about – there are about 25 former Maki on the ship. Uh, it, it, there's about 100 people on the ship, and we're told it estimated about a quarter of them. Um I can name two or three off the top of my head, but we should have known again a version of the show that came later. We would have known the names of every single one of those Maki, one that had been done with care. And the while this, I really find the set when they're discovering the bodies and all of that. I find that very effective from a creepy way. Um, it would have meant more if they'd bothered to establish these characters. I mean. The closest we get is Jor, who all we know about her is she was friends with somebody and she likes to read him books. Um, and that's yeah. it. Like, that's not a person, that's not enough to be a personality yet. And so, I mean, it almost reminds me of an 80s slasher movie where you don't care about any of the characters because you just want to see the blood. And, but, th- but this is not a bloody episode or anything. I mean, they very specifically aren't killed. And so, what are we in it for? Yeah, I, I don't know what the point of this episode is. And I think that that's, that's really what it comes down to is that it's very well done. I think the actual, like, especially the, the scene of them, you know, in the, in the holodeck um, doing the sort of like photonic evidence gathering yeah. is, is very reminiscent of um, other scenes. I think probably most notably that episode of TNG. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but they, they kind of like make that. Um, uh, like table scene and they're oh, trying to figure out schisms. whether they taken. Yeah, schisms, exactly. That was exactly. such and a good one. Oh. Is it as good as that scene? No, it's not. No. But I think that there are elements that are very interesting. I think the actual set pieces of this episode are very are very yeah. good. But Everything in that's the theater meant- is great. Yeah, the, the theater is a great scene. I mean, it's fun, whatever. But the the problem with repression is that it is very bad for you psychologically. No. <laughs> the problem with repression is that, again, it's too little too late. This is an episode that really desperately wants to be Deep Space Nine. And yeah. 
it just isn't because it has not done it fundamentally has ignored its own backstory for six years and yeah. so the maquis style and again i'm kind of like getting my dander up to start a rant because why bring the maquis stuff up at this yeah. point in the show's run you know like this is whatever whatever you think about the way that voyager handled that particular piece of setting for the show and you know while i gave voyager the benefit of the doubt surrounding how it handled the maquis especially in the first two or three seasons i think that it's become patently obvious that you know a new, the neutralist statement that or the most neutral statement that you can make about the maquis is that it was a missed opportunity that they were created for Star Trek Voyager because Star Trek Voyager used them very little and to no great effect. Yeah. But then this episode desperately wants to be in a different show. This episode would be so much better if we knew 10 Maquis crew members, 15 Maquis crew members. That would not have been that hard to do. And they just... Don't. I mean, we know Balana, we know Chakotay because they're main characters. We know, I mean, well, you don't know this guy, the Bolian, but he was in Learning Curve, the episode where Tuvok yeah. tries to, you know, whip the, the Maquis crew members that are kind of slipping through the cracks into shape. And then uh, Torin was in Nothing Human, but the rest of them, I don't know who any of these people are. Yeah. And this, I mean, the, the, the major conflict of the episode really does benefit more from having a wound that is freshly closed like if this had been around season two when they finally started to accept the maquis the maquis have started to figure out their place they've begun to bond they don't think of themselves as maquis anymore and then suddenly the division is made clear again and that paranoia is very fresh i mean by this point they have been the Ma- Maquis and Federation have been working together for seven years. Most of the Maquis probably think of themselves as Federation at this point, sir. And and it is as Janeway points out, it's three years since the Maquis have been disbanded due to the Alpha Quadrant incident, which they now know about. Which Tuvok for well, sure. Well, I think that's a pretty bloodless way to say that the Cardassians, with the help of the Jem Hadar, massacred all of the Maquis. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. But even beyond that, you know, again, the circumstance, the circumstances, even which created the Maquis, are gone. There is no. I mean, they do make that very clear in the ending. You know, this cause doesn't exist anymore. This is an anachronism. This doesn't. You know, you have nothing worth fighting for. The Maquis wasn't a rebellion against the Federation for the Federation itself. I mean, they weren't re- they weren't rebelling against uh, the ideals of the Federation. They had felt that the Federation had fallen in its ideals. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I actually think that that the use of the word rebellion in this episode to to refer to the Maquis is extremely odd because yeah, they weren't a rebellion. I mean, that's not what they were. They were they were terrorists slash freedom fighters, depending on your your um, viewpoint. But it wasn't a rebellion. It wasn't like they were trying to overthrow yeah. the Federation or anything. They just wanted the Federation, as you said, to, to live up to its own ideals and not sort of engage in this very sort of cynical real politic. And so, you know, I mean, that's all fine. But once again, what we get with that repression is is why now? Like, yeah, you know, I think that that I don't know who wrote this episode, but, you know, Ken Biller and, and, and probably, I think, has some interest in the Maquis and wished that the show had dealt with them more. And I 
too wish that the yeah. show had dealt with them more, but the show didn't. And so it, it strikes me as an episode of the show that is coming from some sort of alternate universe. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's it's a shame they didn't do more with the Maquia. It's a shame they didn't do more with Kess. It's a shame that they didn't get a, give Harry Kim a character. But um, but you can't make up for six yeah, years of like neglect that, with, with one season. That, uh, you know, that sucks. You got to tell other stories, I guess. You know, it, 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 it's, it's too late to tell these stories. And again, it seems like everybody is – every single time there's been a new showrunner, it's felt like this is their season two. And well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, you know, I'm going to extrapolate out and guess, but I would say that, that, you know, Ken Biller had worked on the show for a long time. And so when he finally got elevated to showrunner, he probably sat down and thought to himself, okay, what, what, what do I want Star Trek Voyager to be? What, what are the interests of the show that align with my interests? And what we are seeing so far is, is interest of mine that align with the show as it is becoming. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but you can't just do this. Like the show has been on for six years yeah. and has not dealt with any of this stuff. And so you can't just suddenly bring it back with almost no explanation. And, and you know, leaving all the sort of like meta stuff aside, I think that the actual motivation for this Vedic, uh, Tiro Aeneas or Aeneas, whatever his name is, um, is, is, is just, Odd. He's a like, mad scientist. That's literally all he right, is. Like, he's an what's ab- his actual motivation here? Yeah, I mean, so so listen, I also get that seven seven years ago or so, he, you know, while Tuvok was undercover, he met up with him, realized, you know, finally the perfect specimen for my plan, you know, kind of a thing, and he, you know, sure. he did this mind control against him. Okay, so we're supposed to believe... Tuvok gets lost. Seven years go by. Tiro has survived the destruction of the Maquis. He survived the Dominion War. He survived the loss of Cardassia. He recogn- He sees that, and then suddenly he hears the news. Uh, news that Voyager is in communication, and so he's able to sabotage his son's Tuvok's son's communication in order to piggyback on a Federation signal in order to give Tuvok the signal now. Number one, we have to assume that he's mind-controlled like 25 people in order to have that done. Um, that's either, yeah, or he's like the the universe's like best hacker. Yeah, like you know, we we we, and again, that's assuming he survived. Things that most of the people in the Maquis have not survived. Alrighty, he's clever enough. He has mind control powers. Um, he figures out a way to send this. Why now? It's only just because of a desire to fuck shit up. Like, doesn't he, you know, if he's been this patient, doesn't it make a little more sense to wait until Tuva gets into the Alva Quadrant, which is going to happen in a year or two anyway, even if, uh, we don't know that for sure. It's on the wall. And then unlock his mind then to cause more chaos on Earth where it will actually be useful. 
Yeah, I don't know because like what what is it like let's tease this out even further. Like what is this guy's actual plan? I mean, you know, let's let's say for sake of argument that he was, I don't know, visiting his mother on Bajor when the Gemidar slash Cardassians, the Dominion, like massacred all the Maquis. Okay, fine. He he survived. He went underground. He's now living on Bajor. All right, sure. Um, I can buy that. But then he finds this out and he does what like what is the purpose of this because yeah i guess we're just supposed to assume that like this is the worst like this is the worst part of star trek voyager which is that it makes every character out to be like a cartoon which is that i guess we're just supposed to assume that even though the the external reasons for why the maquis existed in the first place are no longer there because yeah cardassia was basically destroyed by the dominion and has no power anymore and at the same time, like, all of the colonists are dead, so there are no more Federation colonists yeah. to be, like, pissed off that they were suddenly handed over to the Cardassians and had to leave. Like, does he just, is he just supposed to have a burning hatred of Cardassians that strongly that, that basically what he wants to do is, like, what? Just that he, he hates Cardass- shit up? He hates Cardassians so much he wants to take over a Federation ship. I mean, and and my other question... A, federa- a Federation ship that is 35,000 yeah. late years from the Alpha Quadrant. Like, what is the gate? What is his plan here? Like, and that's that's the part. Like, I can, I can, like, make this work to a certain point. I can massage the facts that I know and kind of extrapolate them out to a certain point. But I always come to this thing where I'm like... Okay, and then he has a bunch of Maquis on a Starfleet ship that's 35 years from the Alpha Quadrant, so why? Yeah. What was the purpose of that? Like, and, just, and, just to, like, is is he just an anarchist? Does he, does he just want to blow shit up? It seems like that's the reason. I mean, let me ask you this. So you have a uh, – so there's a crew of 100. Uh, there's about 25 Maquis, and Tuvok has the ability to brainwash people to his cause. So sure. he takes 25 Maquis and he says, let's just dump 75 people on the M-Class planet. I mean, why doesn't he immediately brainwash Janeway and then, you know, one by one call everybody in and get – like, why isn't that the plan? And so you have a ship of 100 Maquis now brainwashed and running the ship instead of just 25 doing four times the work. Like, just well, on that I, level, I, that makes literally no I, sense. I think I have the answer, though. Oh. And I, this is, like, the one part of the episode that I think actually does answer that question, which is that um, Tuvok isn't necessarily brainwashing the former Maquis. He is unlocking the brainwashing that had already been done okay. to them. And that's the point of that, like, code word, right? And that's the point, like, Patofar or whatever, and then they say, I understand, like— we are supposed to believe that this uh, 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 Vedic Tarot um, brainwashed like every single member of Chakotay's crew for reasons that remain sort of mysterious and then just had this elaborate plan in mind. I mean, it just it, it's not I don't know. There's because... no way this could actually work or happen. I mean, this is a plot of a television show. This is not something that anyone would actually do. See, and it, see what I thought was going on was more though Tuvok was the only one who had the doctor actually work on him, but he was passing it along with the mind meld because he was able to pass along the brainwashing as part of the personality that gets I don't know. I thought it was something along those lines. 
but I mean, either way, it's, it's, it's dumb. It yeah, yeah that's what I say. It's stupid, and it's a sign, though, that this episode was not real. That that this episode was not that well thought out. I mean, if the killer's motivations make no sense, the uh, uh, a murder mystery falls apart. Yeah, and they're not even being killed, which is the other part of it. I mean, no, like, but that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, this is framed like one. Yes, exactly. Yeah, of course. And then, of course, I mean, like, I mean, that's the problem with it, right? Is that this is an episode that as you watch it, you're like, yeah, cool. Okay, I'm with this. Like, it's it's moving along. Like, it never really lingers on any plot point too long. So you don't really have time to think about it. But then once you, like, sit back after the fact and you start to talk about it, you're just like, oh, this actually doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and... I, okay, well... I, I mean, I know Adaptation came out not that long after this, and one of the thriller plot points it makes fun of is the killer you're looking for is yourself. And I just... I thought it was very funny that that was what this episode was. Like, it is very hokey in that way. And that's what I want to talk about next, which is that there's a couple of things that I think we still need to deal with, which is Tuvok and then the Maquis. And so I will let you pick which one you want to talk about first. Oh, let's do Tuvok. He's the greatest. Tuvok is the greatest. He's your favorite character in Star Trek history. Yeah. I mean, I will say that I like Tim Russ a lot as, as a, a Vulcan. I think he does a really good job. I enjoy his performance in this episode quite a bit. I think that he does the best job that he can with pretty lackluster material, but Fundamentally, what it comes down to for me is a question that I think we had had about Data, which is that if Data was so easily manipulated into becoming a homicidal maniac, why would they ever keep him around? And the same question appears to me in this episode. If Tuvok, or frankly any Vulcan, can be manipulated into becoming a homicidal maniac this easily, why would they ever trust him again? Well, because I do like to think that the Federation wouldn't engage in profiling. I mean, Data is a unique case, and we are not. I mean, we we may not be making something a statement about all androids, and he is very singular. But to say that about all Vulcans, I don't think uh, works quite right. I mean, it is a very specific set of circumstances that got Tuvok in this way. Yeah, that's fair. It's the magic Vedic that has the magic brainwashing yeah. technique and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I just, I, I fundamentally have a problem no. with it because it paints Tuvok out to be a bit of a sap. <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, we're we're supposed to believe that Tuvok was able to, like, refrain from becoming a Borg for a while. Yeah. But then he, like, doesn't. That's true. He's, he's been mind controlled this twice. This this in in a very short time. Does Kendall yes. not like Tuvok? It's possible. I mean, his son is apparently too dumb to realize that. You know, all right. So the, they don't have the bandwidth to send the comp- composition. But I mean, he's. It's as don't, much. Don't they have MP3? Yeah, I was to say it's as much bandwidth to talk about it as to say, "Let me play you the chorus." Like. <laughs> Like, I mean, you're sending a fucking video. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. I, I I think that we are starting to have this episode fall apart on us a little bit, and that's yeah. fine. Um, well, let's talk about, before we talk about the Maquis, then, I think the other thing to talk about with Tuvok is, is the very end of the episode, because 
I think it's very pat and I don't think it makes a ton of sense. And I think actually, I mean, I don't necessarily think that I would have wanted this episode to be a two-parter, but I kind of feel like it would have maybe benefited from being a two-parter because you get this really like cool setup where the Maquis are back and they're like badass again. Yeah. And they're like in their Maquis clothes and you're, and there's like four minutes left in the episode and you're like, okay, like how are they going to fix this? And how they yeah. fix it is like the dumbest thing possible. Yeah, no, and, and that frankly would have allowed to, I mean, if you have the first 15 minutes of the episode establishing the various Maquis characters, which you can establish three characters fairly quickly. Well, maybe Voyager can't, but you can, ha- it, it, the old trick. I was going to say, you're giving the show a bit more, bit too much credit, I think. No, but I mean, it's the it's the obvious trick of you assign someone to Balana, someone to Tuvok, someone to Chakotay, and they each have to, you know a scene or two bouncing off of these characters, and then uh, they start to become comatose. And oh no, this character we just met, who we kind of like, is has been assaulted. What what's going to happen? And then again, the reveal that it's you know it's been Tuvok the whole time, and the Maquis take over the ship, and that's the cliffhanger. I mean, I know we're going to have at least one more two parter. Is it going to be as good as that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to find out. I don't know. You're right. It does feel like two parts may have given this enough room to actually breathe. And or if this had been a DS9 style show where there was an amount, uh, an ability to seed a little plot line an episode or two ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Voyager has tried to do that in the past and, and it has worked to various degrees, but I guess they just didn't really know about this episode yeah like why are well, why are none of these three one of the characters from i don't i know it's not lower decks but what the hell was that episode recently oh yeah that episode i don't even remember the name of it which is probably damning with fame praise yeah um, but i mean you could e- even if you didn't establish it you could retcon that at least one of them was a maquis and yeah, there we go then we have an actual character well, the answer is that they just don't think that far ahead. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, like that's that's no, the actual answer. But they, they also don't care. That's not that's not the show they're making. They don't actually care about it that much, and they don't care to think that far ahead. And yeah. that's really what it comes down to. But I also think they're not thinking that recently behind either. And it really does seem like maybe Biller had a list of notes that he started compiling around season two that he's trying to get to now. And again, this is a cool one. Having the characters from that early on would have been a nice callback quickly, but it feels very stale. And, you know, well, and to be fair as well, I mean, I think that, that bringing back actors into a guest starring role, I mean, they may have wanted to bring other yeah. ones back and they just couldn't because they weren't available for whatever yeah. reason. You know, we really don't know. We have no idea. I guess I'm trying to give Voyager a little more credit than maybe credit is due, but, you know, we, we just don't have the answers to make that kind of determination. No, that is the, and that is the other side of everything, and we have mentioned this several times Nobody wants to be there anymore. This is a steady job at best for the people here. And again, they know that it's only a steady job for another year. And maybe if we're lucky, we'll be able to move over to the other show. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's wrap up the episode by by talking just a little bit about... um, the Maquis and specifically Chakotay and Balana, because the one thing that I will give the episode credit for is it does a very good job of quickly reestablishing that 
the reality of the situation that things would break down a little bit and i think lines would be drawn a little bit if this yeah. actually was happening you know there's that nice little scene in sick bay where chakotay says something about your crew and yeah um you know janeway kate mulgrew does her best you know kind of like strained impression and says you know are you my crew you know like things like that um you know that scene in the mess hall where they're they're kind of like all the maquis crew members are gathered yeah. and talking is is very well done and effective but you know what does it really come down to i mean i think that the actors are doing a really good job with very limited material and it just would have been a better episode if the maquis had slowly been integrated into the yeah. crew over say two seasons and frankly this kind of Mind control plots like this are at their most effective when the mind control may or may not be a desire of the character, right? Like, um, yeah. Tuvok needs to worry that, no, I actually did want to lead a rebellion. I did feel bad about these things. I would if given the chance. And I don't believe that any of these people by this point actively want to do this um i i don't think they care anymore again they they all know that the maquis have all been destroyed they all know that they've been on this place for seven years and they've bonded with the people they all know that uh they are they they are all very different than when they set out and many of them have come to probably even regret their time in the maquis or at least understand that this was my past and i'm in a new life now and like I said, mind control only works when when you're being forced against your will to do something that you kind of already maybe want to do. Yeah, I think that's the case. And I mean, that would, again, have been interesting yeah. if they had had some Maki characters in the show as secondary characters that uh, yeah. perhaps were a little conflicted about being in the Federation. And I think they try well, and do that with a couple of the characters in this episode that have like one or two lines. But we don't know who these people are, and so fundamentally it comes across as a little bit of play acting. Well, you know, I mean, that is part of why Seska was effective early on, because she was exploiting uh, those feelings that, you know, gee, we're not really part of this crew yet. They're not going to let us do what we want. And frankly, at this point, their concerns are still relevant, uh, whether or not they know that. And so Seska kind of is encourages a couple of the people to go along with that and to go in against the crew. But again, things are very different now. There are no more Seskas on the ship. Right, right. That we know of. (gasps) All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on drive or oppression, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're on all those platforms, even though you should not be because social media is toxic to yourself, your psychology, and the world. Truck About Show is our username there. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for this podcast, the one you are listening to right now in your ears. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. And don't you want new fans to find the show? Don't you want to share this wonderful thing with everyone? Next episode two weeks we're going to be talking about critical care and inside man